Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? Fantastic. That's great. It is great to see you all. Uh, we got cool weather this weekend, uh, which was very nice. Did anybody get out and enjoy the cool weather this weekend? Uh, it is nice to, to have that breath of fresh air in a way. I mean, it was still 80% humidity, but, you know, it was 80 degrees. So we'll take the 20% or 20 degree difference. Uh, but thankful to the Lord for his faithfulness in that to give us a little bit of a reprieve. Uh, this morning, we're going to begin the look at the beginning of the end of James's letter to the church. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to James chapter 5. And uh, beginning in verse 7, James addresses his attention back to the church. We saw last week, the week before, you know, he says, Come now, you who are rich. And he's he speaking and, and rebuking, in a way, those that would desire to be rich, desire to live a life of luxury instead of pursuing a life in humility. Prior to that, it was, it was come now, uh, you who would... Uh, uh, do wrong against your brother, you would judge one another in many ways. But here he shifts his focus back as he begins to wrap up his letter. And he speaks plainly and clearly to his brothers. But I want to read the text this, together this morning, verses 7 through 12, and then see what James has to say for us um, as he begins to wrap up. So in verse 7, James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. He says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I want to pray for us real quick, just to get my own heart and mind um, just positioned. Lord, uh, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time together. Um, Lord, I do thank you for your word and for the study that we have, we've been going through. And I just pray for our time this morning, Lord, that you would give us uh, fresh ears and open hearts, Lord, to, to hear from you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us, Lord, as we seek to draw near to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the thrust of this section of Scripture is one of patience. Three times he mentions the word, the word patience there at the very onset of it. As he redirects his focus to God's people, to the brothers, he says, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives three examples of that. But he says again in verse 8, he says, Then be patient. He says the farmer was being patient. So the idea for you and I is that we should immediately begin to take away from this that we should be patient. But how do you and I typically design, define patience? Now, when we think through patience, what, what tends to come to mind? Usually it surrounds our uh, circumstantial need to get somewhere quickly, maybe. 
And then you ever, you ever been in a hurry and then you're driving on the road and then immediately, for some reason, everyone else that exists on planet Earth that is on the road is not in a hurry while you're in a hurry? Everybody's going slow. Everybody's taking their time. It's a Sunday drive on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, and you're trying to get somewhere. And then, Lord, just, just give me patience. You know, sometimes we foolishly have that, you know, I've just been... Praying for patience, you know, where I can ask them, hey, what's God been teaching you lately? Well, he's been teaching me patience. Good follow-up question is that, well, how has he been teaching you patience? Well, there was this guy, and he was just really on my nerves, you know, and I think of Officer Hops and Flash in Zootopia. I think it's two times in a row I've referenced the kid movie, but it's, you have, you have this person who's just in a complete hurry, they want to get somewhere, get something done fast, and the person that is helping them to do that is just slower than they desire them to be. And there's just this angst, and we all experience it. We all feel it, and we all know what it is when it comes to patience. But when James says here, be patient, it's not so much about us being inconvenienced and needing to have patience because we've been inconvenienced. The word in the Greek there is makrothumeo, but it means to preserve patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. The majority of the time in the New Testament you find this word used, it is used in relation to suffering. Not mere inconvenience, not the way we approach patience or our need for patience as we interact with people in this world. Yes, we do need patience in many ways for that. But in context, James is getting at this idea that when it comes to being patient, we're being patient in our suffering. It is long-suffering. It's, it's not to lose heart. Because on this side of heaven, we're always going to experience difficulty. James began his letter, as we studied it several weeks ago, in chapter 1, he says, Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, or trials of various kinds. He said, you're going to encounter trials. You need to consider it joy. And he returns to it as he begins to end and wrap up his letter. He returns to this idea that you and I are going to experience suffering on this side of heaven. It is guaranteed. And he says we need to be patient in it. He says, be patient, therefore. And always when you read therefore, you look to see what it is there for. for. So just before last week, he, he admonishes or rebukes the rich, those that live seek to live a life of luxury. So he's telling, he's shifting his focus, not from the rich, but for the ones that the rich would exploit, if you recall last week's teaching. But he's saying we should be patient in that suffering. If you're on the receiving end of being treated wrongly and poorly by someone who is rich, then you should be patient in that suffering. But he gives three examples of being patient. One is the farmer, two is the prophets, and three is Job. Let's look at each of these real quick. He says the farmer waits for the precious fruit. He's being patient about it coming until he re receives the early and the late rains. Now the early rains, these came in the fall. On the Jewish calendar, their first month is the month of Tishri. And that's October, November of the Gregorian calendar, which we have, we follow. But that's when the early rains would come. The late rains would come about five months later in the spring, around March and April. And the, the early rains would, would soften the ground, the dry, parched, hard ground from the dry season. It would soften it up, and then the farmer would go out, and he would, he would plow, and he would break up that ground, and he would sow seed. 
And then you'd have the rainy season would, would water that seed. It would germinate. It would begin to grow. And then the latter rains would bring forth a ripening or the fruit of that harvest. So you see in the farmer, James just takes, takes God's people, the Jewish people in the first century who understand agriculture in that part of the world. And he says, this is what patience looks like. It is the farmer who waits patiently for the early and latter rains. So they come year round, and it comes from the Lord, these rains. It's interesting, as I was studying, I found that, um, you know, one may ask in many ways, why was the promised land not in the fertile area of, say, the Fertile Crescent around Egypt, you know, on the Nile River? Why wasn't it in Assyria where you had the Euphrates River and you just had life that comes from these bodies of water? But the idea was, if you think about it, and what God can provide, and that his provision for his people would come solely from him, is he plants them in a place that there is no natural body of water that would provide life. All the provision that God's people would need would come from him as he sends the early and latter rains. And James says the farmer waits patiently on the Lord for those things. The second example is the prophets in verse 10. He says it plainly as an example of suffering and patience. Look at these. He says, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So many prophets, if you know your Old Testament, many of them spoke on behalf of the Lord. The Lord spoke to God's people through the prophets, but many of them were persecuted. Many of them died, but all were persecuted. In Acts chapter 7, verse 52, this is... uh, Uh, Stephen's speech right before he's stoned to death. He says this, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. This is is the statement that just landed the verdict against Stephen to where he would be stoned to death. And he rebuked the religious leaders of the day, and he says, Was it not you who persecuted and killed the prophets? So the prophets most certainly knew suffering. Daniel, he was exiled along with God's people to Babylon. You have the story of being being thrown into the lion's den, but yet the Lord was faithful there and saved him. Jeremiah, he endured very much. He was once beaten and thrown into prison. Upon his release from prison, he was put on house arrest. But then while he was on house arrest, someone came to his house and they captured him once again. They threw him into a well to die alone in a well. But yet he did not die. So he knew suffering. Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. And it did not rain for three and a half years. But he himself had to endure that same drought. So you see the prophets in James' example. If you know your Old Testament. That these are men that suffered. But they suffered patiently. And they suffered well. They knew and exhibited great patience. And yes, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The word steadfast is, is, is one of Brandon's favorite words if you've ever heard a teaching on steadfastness, but it's hupomone. But it's enduring patience and patiently. It's, it's long-suffering. It's staying in it when anyone else, when everyone else may leave, you remain and you endure in it. Which brings us to the third example of patience, and that's in Job. In verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Yes, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful to Job. It wasn't long ago as, as a church we did our study, our devotionals on uh, 
the book of Job and everything that he went through. But you have this man who lost his wealth, he lost his family, except for his wife. But it was his wife who told him to curse God and die. He loses everything. And then eventually he loses his own health. And you find Job and he's just, just in the dirt and sackcloth and ashes. This broken man, he's cursing the day of his birth. And you would think, well, he's not enduring well. He's not remaining patient, but you see in Job a patient endurance in that he never curses the Lord. Throughout the back and forth and the onslaught of, of, of his friends who constantly accuse him of some wrongdoing, James remains steadfast in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his trial. But a wonderful takeaway and a wonderful point in this should help us when we think about patience and enduring suffering. It's when we look at Job and you read Job and everything that he went through, everything that he lost. But you find a man that even in the midst of that loss, he's a mark of steadfastness. But yet throughout his trial, you see Job being completely honest with his situation. He's 100% honest about how he feels about it. He's 100% honest honest about about just the difficulty and the pain that he's experiencing he's conveying that without trying to squash it he's not trying to push it down he's not trying to bury pain he's being open and honest he's putting everything out there for how he feels and through the midst of that he's still faithful to the lord fully confident that the lord is righteous the lord is sovereign the lord is above all of it and the lord one day will redeem So three wonderful examples that James gives us on being patient. And there are a multitude of other examples in your Bible of men and women that have remained patient in long-suffering. But I want to go back to the early and late reigns. Because you see clearly the prophets, they suffered and they suffered well. You see Job, he suffered and he suffered well. But if you look at the farmer and what James says about the farmer, well, he just waits patiently for the early and the late rains. So where's, where's the farmer suffering in a sense? Is he just sitting there at his house, watching the dirt, just in angst maybe, just waiting for it to grow? Where's the, his suffering? But I want to look at something here if you, if you will follow me on this. The early and late, rain, late rains, they've often been said to be representative of the outpouring of God's Spirit. In John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, um, I don't have this for you on the screen, but I want to read it. Just, just, just listen. It says, On the day of the feast, that's the Feast of Booths, and it's interesting, the Feast of Booths is in the month of Tishri, so the beginning of their year, right when the early rains are about to begin. But on the last day of that feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. So you see this idea when it comes to water and it comes to rain, you have this outpouring of the Spirit upon God's people. And Jesus says that this outpouring will come. But likewise, some say the late rains are a later outpouring of the Spirit. So you have the early rains as an initial outpouring of the Spirit, but sometime in the future, there will be another outpouring of the Spirit. But the way I look at this is this. You have the early and the late rains. One begins in 
in October, November, the latter rains come in March or April. But it's, I don't view that as two separate events. I view that as the beginning and end of the same expanse of time. If the, dry, if the rainy season is five months, the early, rains mark, the early rains mark the beginning of it and the latter rains mark the end of it. So you have at the beginning of it, you have the outpouring of God's Spirit. The prophet Joel spoke of this, as the outpouring of God's Spirit would come upon his people. It's a season that seeds are planted and nourished and grow and produce fruit and are harvested between the early and the latter rains. James says, like the farmer, we should be patient for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If we think about that picture, it was in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where you have the Holy Spirit descend upon the people. It was poured out upon the apostles and those that were with them. And it began the church age. And you have the Spirit go forth from that point. Seed was planted, and over time, that seed grew. The church was born, and the church grew over 2,000 years and continues to grow. You have the early rain, and the latter rain would mark the end of that period. So you have the outpouring of the Spirit. So when you and I, when we think about being patient and long-suffering like the farmer who waits for the early and the latter rains, we have the outpouring of the Spirit, and we have this period where we're existing on this side of heaven when we're experiencing suffering, but a day is coming. Look at what he says. He says we should be patient for what? The coming of the Lord. James draws our attention to a future event that is going to happen, that the Lord is going to come, he's going to receive his church, and that would mark the end of this period, this seasonal change where the seed is planted, the seed grows, and then the Lord would return for his people. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, I want to read this to you. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Could this be considered a harvest? If you have the early rains that mark the beginning of the planting season, you have the latter rains marking the end of that season, and then the harvest comes in the fall. Could it not be that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost begins this season of planting seed, of growing seed? Paul said, I planted Apollos water, but God brings forth the growth. But one day a harvest will come. Could it not be when the Lord comes and receives his church? Could that not be a harvest? So for you and I, we are to be patient on this side of heaven. Whatever suffering, whatever trial that James says is surely going to come, we're surely going to experience, we should be patient and look to a day where the Lord is going to return and he's going to receive us unto, unto himself. So patience here is oriented to perseverance, to the expectation of the coming of the Lord. It suggests the triumphant steadfastness which does not come from heroic depths of one's own heart, but from the certainty of proximity to the coming of the Lord. You and I aren't patient because of how awesome we are and our ability to be patient and to control our emotions in the moment. We cannot. We prove that we cannot in our flesh. But when we have his spirit that's been poured into our hearts, 
We have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those. But patience comes as a result of the Spirit indwelling and being poured out into our hearts. And that brings us to a point where we're able to remain in it. But not for the sake of just being great at being patient because we know that the coming of the Lord is near. We have no idea what that day is. But we have here James and the other apostles time and time again. They speak of that day as if it's imminent. They live their life in such a way as if the coming of the Lord was imminent. And that produces a patience and long-suffering because of the nearness of our Lord. And after all, having that awareness of his nearness should comfort us, but also give us pause when we want to act out against that patience. Because verse 9, who is standing at the door? Is it not the judge? James is standing at the door. He says, don't grumble against one another. Don't complain against one another. Don't fight with one another. There's, there's no time for all that doing that amongst yourselves. And we've taught very clearly, and James has taught on that point, on how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says, don't grumble and complain. Don't black light. Don't, don't fight one another. There's no time for all of that because the judge is at the door. So we should be patient. But also there's another thing that he says here that I think is highly important. And see if I can get through this in a timely manner. But he says, therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Farmer waits for the precious fruit. Uh, verse 8, he says, you also be patient. If you can find verse 8 there, Chris, throw that up there. Please. It says, you also be patient. And then he says, establish your hearts. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. So in a way, there's two commands. There's be patient, which is abundantly clear. But then he says, establish your hearts. And there's an importance there to what he tells you and I to do when it comes to establishing our hearts. The word there is sterizo. In the main sense, in the main usage in Greek, it means to support something. It's the idea to fix something so that it stands upright, that it is immovable. It's used sometimes to, to, to speak of the vine that is supported by a stake or an old man who's supported by a stick. If you think just a, a feeble old man in his old age and he's just tired, he's been over, and it's hard for him to walk, he has a stick that supports him. It's sterizo. Supports him up. But the idea that's implied there is if you see that old man coming and you want to be a horrible human being, what would happen if you went over and kicked that stick out from underneath his arm? He would fall down. He would go to the ground. That branch that's attached, that vine that's attached to the stake, if you remove the stake, the vine would fall. But the idea was Therizo is to support oneself on something. But the implication is that the thing that's being supported is prone to fall. James says you should establish your hearts. Why? We should support our hearts because our hearts are prone to fall. We are prone to wonder, the word says. Originally, no one is righteous, no, not one. We all seek our own way. No one seeks after the Lord. Our heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a restless evil. All of those things about our heart. And James says you should support your heart because it is prone to fall. 
And what is the thrust of James's point through all of this letter that we've talked about? That what is at root is not what comes out of our mouth. The problem is what comes from our heart. It's what comes from our heart, goes out of our mouth. When we pursue riches and glory and a life of luxury, it's because our heart is bent towards those things instead of the Lord. So the issue is our heart. Luke 16, 26, Jesus says this as, as when it comes to the New Testament usage of this word, sharizo, it's to fix or to establish. But no, this is Abraham when Lazarus ends up in heaven and you have the rich man down below. Rich man dies, Lazarus goes to, the poor man goes to heaven. But Abraham says to the rich man, he says, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed. It has been established. It's immovable in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So New Testament uses of this word is a thing that is immovable. It's not going to change. It is established. It is fixed in place. Now this comes by the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13 says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as, for, as we do for you. He says, So that you may establish, or he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish and guard you against the evil one. 1 Peter 5, 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So you see this word. This is an act that the Lord does on our behalf as he establishes you and I. But look at look at what is associated with that establishment. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, establish your hearts by the Lord will at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's looking towards the end. We're established here until that coming. 1 Peter 5.10, where he's called us to his eternal glory. It is an eternal glory that is yet to come, and we are established here and now. We're also established by others. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 Verses 2 and 3 says, and Paul's saying this, and see, he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in the faith. Verse 3 says that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So Paul writing to the Thessalonians, he says, hey, I'm sending Timothy to you. He is going to establish your faith. He's going to support your faith. He's going to strengthen you there. Because we are destined for these afflictions. So again, this idea of we're going to be afflicted, we're going to experience suffering, so we need to be established by the Lord, by others. But now real quick, he says that we're destined there for affliction. So Starizo presupposes that the Christians who are to be strengthened are under assault and in danger of becoming uncertain in their work. Have you ever felt uncertain in your work? You ever been going about your days? What is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do here? Those feelings that we have come about because there's not an establishment in our heart of what we're here to do. We're here to glorify the Lord, to seek after His will. His will is that we would do His will. But as we approach the Lord, as we spend time with the Lord, as we abide with the Lord, His will becomes known to us. And that is the establishment of our hearts. The effect or aim of this support or strengthening is that the Christian, in spite of troubles, would patiently endure 
anything that comes. I want to look at Peter's example right quick. In Luke chapter 22, verse 32, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The word strengthen is sterizo. So Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed for you earnestly. But he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. The idea is he's going to turn again. Let's look at verse 31 and what he's getting at. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to Peter. Hey, Satan demanded you so he can sift you. I've prayed for you that you may not fail. But when you've turned again, strengthen my people. What does Peter do? He fails. Verse 33, though, what Peter says to him. He says, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So you have Jesus make this statement to Peter that the, Satan wants you. He's going to sift you like wheat. But you know what? You're going to fail. But when you return, when you return back to me, sterizo my people. So here's Peter's encouragement. And this is how you and I establish our hearts. We learn to be patient as we walk with the Lord in His Spirit, enduring the world that we live in, but we establish our hearts in this way. Look at what Peter says. In 2 Peter verses, chapter 1, verse 3 and following, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, verse 5, he says, For this very reason, he says, now this is what you do. He says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. You see, all of these push themselves towards the greatest commandment, which is love. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love, and all the other fruit follow that one thing, and all of these thrust themselves towards it. But virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And then verse 8, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from the former sins. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Remember what it means to establish your heart, to support your heart, like the feeble old man who needs a stick to walk because of his age. You and I should establish our hearts. We establish our hearts on these things. And Peter says, if you do these things, if they are increasing within you, you will never fall. You will find yourself supported, strengthened, and established for the coming of the Lord. But look at what Peter says next. 
He says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If our heart is prone to seek riches like we just looked at last week, he says the riches that we have is what's coming before us. When the coming of the Lord comes and we are caught up with him, riches follow. Not riches of this world where moth and rust will destroy, but riches that will last forever. It's an eternal weight of glory. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, is what Peter says, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter says, I know that I'm, I'm about to go. I know the manner in which I'm going to die. I'm going to die in a suffering way. And he says, I know that it's coming. Verse 15, he says, until then I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. If we've ever questioned why Jesus made Peter the rock on which he would build his church, this is it. As you have this man, I take so much encouragement from Peter. As you have this man who's, who's, who's broken, who's arrogant, who's prideful, he's abrasive in every way. He's failed miserably. But here, yet yeah, you have that man giving this understanding, this truth, that this is what you do if you desire to establish yourselves and you desire to never fall. Do these things, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And he says, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to remind you of these things. My departure is near. I want to tell you so that when I go, you will remember what has been said. Surely this is the rock on which Jesus would build his church. He knew the cost. He knew his time was ending. The culmination of his suffering was drawing near. He did as best as he possibly could to be obedient to God's command. To when you have turned again to strengthen the brothers. Peter knew the cost. Paul certainly knew the cost. All the apostles knew what this light momentary affliction was preparing for us. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All of them, all the apostles, all the martyrs, they understood suffering. They understood patience and long-suffering in the midst of it on this side of heaven, knowing that the coming of the Lord was at hand, and it drew them into him, and they responded with established hearts and gave away everything that they had to give, which was the word of God, the knowledge of God, and the truth. But do you know what the word martyrs means? In the Greek, it's martus. And it literally means witness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before the coming of the Holy Spirit, call it the early rain, Jesus says that you are my witnesses. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you and I are witnesses. To use Greek terminology, you and I are martyrs. However our lives go, however our end may be, we may die in our sleep, 
Praise the Lord if that's the case, but our end is going to come. But our life is want to be, meant to be one of martyrdom, that we would be a witness for the Lord in the midst of this light momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory to which we should be patient because the end is coming and the Lord is coming. Now verse 12 as we wrap up. James, now, but above all, <clears throat> above all of that, as my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? So that you may not fall under condemnation. But why, why end this? Why, why wrap this up right here? Why, why? It seems off in a way. You're talking about patience. You're talking about establishing your hearts, enduring suffering, and now you're saying, but above all, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But what do we tend to do in desperation? What do we tend to do when things are difficult? Oftentimes, for me, whenever things are difficult, I I can potentially make promises I can't keep. I want to be perceived as someone who's got it all together. So in the midst of my turmoil, I project an image of strength that doesn't exist. And I can make promises or say things that will not come to pass. My yes becomes a no or my no becomes a yes. And these things are out of place. James says that we should not do this so that we don't fall under condemnation. And that's not condemnation in the sense that we're going to be judged and cast out. Right, Romans 8, 1. You know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But condemnation here in the word in the Greek is krisis. But the word implies a wrong has been done. If we say yes, but we mean no, or we sing no and we mean yes, if we're duplicitous in that way, we can be found to be wrong and judged according to be wrong. And then we become liars. We don't become truth tellers. So any patience and long suffering, the witness that we have that should be a proclamation to the coming of the Lord and his goodness becomes tainted by the way we may lie or say things that aren't true in order to cover up some thing that we may feel. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. But Satan wants us, this is Warren Wearsby, he says, Satan wants us to get impatient with God. For an impatient Christian is a powerful weapon in the devil's hands. Moses' impatience robbed him of the trip to the Holy Land. Abraham's impatience led led to the birth of Ishmael, which was the enemy of the Jews. And Peter's impatience almost made him a murderer. When Satan attacks us, it is easy for us to get impatient and run ahead of God and miss out on his blessing. It couldn't be more important for you and I as we walk through a world of difficulty to remain patient, not as a matter of just I'm tired of being inconvenienced, but patient knowing that the Lord is coming, that there's riches and glory that come with Him, that anything we experience here is meant to strengthen us to be a witness to Him and the peace and comfort and contentment that's in his hand. That's the idea for you and I. As the farmer waits until the coming of the Lord, the prophets endured, Job was steadfast. May we establish our hearts and trust that the Lord is near. Amen. I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I do thank you for your promise that That you will come again, Lord. That you will return to receive your church. 
or the promise that, that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us eternal and eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Lord. That's what awaits us. That's the riches that we should look towards. And if our mind and perspective goes there, it changes the way we view this world and experience this world. But it can be immensely difficult when we're in the middle of it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us the steadfastness of Job. I don't desire that hardship would befall your people here, Lord. But if that is what is necessary to position a heart before you, Lord, I pray for that thing. But I know that any individual who may be in the midst of it now, Lord, is not alone. They're not meant to be in it alone. For you establish our hearts, Lord. Your people establish our hearts. We find encouragement from one another, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you do make needs known within our body, Lord, so that we can love one another. That all these things would be increasing in us, Lord, and it would lead us to loving one another well as we patiently await your coming. We love you and we thank you for your promise, Lord, and we look forward to that day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.